Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is uh, Mike Eagle, and this is Secret Skin. Welcome, Scandinavians. Thank you for showing this much skintestinal fortitude. Um, I am in Gary, Indiana right now, in the home of my sister, who's been kind enough to join me for the intro this week. Hello, everyone. Uh, yeah, when we were checking, you were all confident. Now now you are backing away from the microphone. What's going on? <laughs> well, hi. It's interesting to be here this evening. Well, <laughs> you, it shouldn't be interesting for you to be here because this is your house. Yes, well, it's interesting to be in secret skin. <laughs> okay, okay. Do you, have you ever heard it? Yes, I have. That's okay. why it's so interesting. Okay, well, cool. Um, it's my sister, folks. Um, my younger sister, by about a year and a half, two, two years, year and a half? A year, two, almost two. Almost two. Yeah. yeah. Um, you want to tell them your name? You don't have to. I am Mia Alicia. Okay. Hi, how are oh, you? Oh, you should tell them because you got stuff to promote. You have a business, and I would like you for you to let people know about it. Well, Impact Public Relations is my business. I do community relations, media relations. You can find us at Impact, M P A C T, public relations at gmail.com, at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You hear that business voice, folks? I'm here to tell you, she's been answering phones like that since she was about six years old. Yes. <laughs> it's really... Oh, Sounding all professional. Um, because you're my sister and you're on the show, I think you should tell people something embarrassing about me. Hmm. I think you, I, should, I should put myself on the spot by putting you on the spot with that sort something of Something interesting, request. something embarrassing. Sure. I, I, honestly, there is really, it's hard to find the embarrassing things. I thought I was embarrassing. Something embarrassing. You thought you were embarrassing. Yeah, I thought I was the embarrassing one. I looked at <laughs> you were the cool one. <laughs> well, I, I guess that's what it feels like to be a human. Is that right. Everybody feels like they're the embarrassed one. You were the cool one. So oh, yeah, see, no. Yeah. So you always got along with people. You always I had a bunch of friends. Social butterfly, but Gosh. those people never really actually liked me. Oh, I was just a social Even butterfly. Even when you were like in the third grade. Yeah, those were the same people that wrote curse words on a sheet of paper that had my name on it and That's turned really it into the teacher. That's really mean. I got in trouble. Oh, I'm going to tell you something embarrassing about me. Oh, you guys are going to love this mm -hmm. one. When I was in fifth grade, um, so Jurassic Park was a big deal. I think the original yeah. Jurassic Park had just come out when I was in the fifth grade. It was good. And um, I went to a school. We went to, you went to Bell. Yeah, now you went to Bell, mm -hmm. too, but you didn't stay and at I, Bell. Right? Did I went you, from, did you Bell graduate to, from Bell. Yes, I graduated. I went from the one on King Drive. Right. Drake. To, from Drake to Bell, yeah. Okay. I feel like you went to some different school somewhere. No, some because reason. you left, you graduated a year or two before me, so right. you were at Whitney Young and I was still at Bell. Got it. Um You were Bell? the one that left. <laughs> I did. I, and I had to because I graduated. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't stay. Um But you know, I I was in a classroom full of smart asses and um you know, every he every was the smart one. No, no, no. Mm -hmm. We were all smart, but we were also all smart asses. We were always, mm -hmm. you know. Um, That's why you all got along so well. Well, we didn't. That's what I was getting <laughs> to. That's what I was getting to. Um, we all kind of took turns being the goat, being the person getting picked on. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it was my turn this one week. And um, like I said, Jurassic Park had just come out. And so this one kid in the class was just drawing this picture and he's like he's probably giggling the whole time just drawing wow. this picture and um i don't even know it has anything to do with me right not paying attention even uh when he's done drawing it 
somebody passes it back to the class or it gets to me and people are falling out uproariously laughing the entire time and then it comes to you um so you know how the jurassic park has a little dinosaur logo Mm -hmm. over the word jurassic park yeah he had drawn a picture called brown assic mike whoa drew a little (laughs) picture of me in my glasses like over the how creative uh, that's what i'm saying we're a bunch of little smart asses yeah because who would even have come up with that it's mean mean very very mean mean people and that went on all week long different people drawing the The same picture to uproarious laughter i don't think i will ever see jurassic park the same oh well i guess i haven't either so that makes sense (laughs) yeah all right well I'm tired. I drove all day from Minneapolis to I'm get so here. I'm so happy that he's here. I'm so happy I'm to be so here. I'm so happy that he's here. I'm so happy to be here. Um, but we're going to talk some more. So we're going to, I'm going to uh, transition this over into this week's interview, which is with uh, my good friend and awesome comedian, Chris Gethard. Um, he of the Chris Gethard show, which is on uh, the Fusion Network. And uh, it just got announced that the Chris Gethard show has gotten... Uh, renewed for a second season so congratulations to him it's a very unique show uh in the interview we talk about it how he tries to uh subvert every element of the talk show format um it's grown to include um a fandom that eventually has has started to work on the show like people who have uh have just shown up as fans have now have careers in television because uh, it's the kind of show that people can come be a part of. And uh, he talks about how this population was created and talks about uh, he try, well, how he tries to be inclusive of certain populations, especially those of outsiders, because he's had his own issues right. dealing with people his own life. He's had a lot of struggles with depression, and he really opens up. He talks about a lot of that stuff. It's a really interesting interview. Um, I'm often forced to listen to the interviews mm-hmm. as after they happen so that we can edit them. Yes. Shout out to my celebrity editors. Um, this is one I didn't mind listening to so yeah. much. It was and good. good. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to, me and me and my sister here, we're going to, we're going to chat some more and um, you guys check out this interview with Chris Gather. Talk with you all later. Yeah. There's a secret radio hour and this is it. I would love for you to explain to people who haven't seen it what it's like. It's always hard. It's got to be. <laughs> yeah, because it's really weird, right? It is, it is not like anything else. It's it legitimately like strange. Like, I think it's, it's, it's a late night talk show, but it's a few things. Like, one is like, if I'm being totally honest, like, I really love late night talk shows. Love Letterman in particular, was like obsessed with Letterman as a kid. And then Conan, like he was, I think, like really hitting his stride when I was in college. Mm-hmm. We used to watch Conan all the time. And it's like, really love it. But I also think it's like, kind of like played out to an annoying degree. Right. The, the format sh- itself. The format. Yeah. And there's so many funny people. Like Seth Myers is a guy who like, I've done improv with him. He's a really good friend of mine. He's like legitimately one of the funniest people ever and i feel like i watch his show and i really enjoy it i really like what he does but it's also like you can feel him having to fit what he does into a format right. and that just really drove me nuts um so i try to just subvert the format in any way i can like anything i can do to have it be non-traditional out of the box i mean i would say a, a main thing is like the fact that your audience is always like right there on the with screen you, there with you like sitting behind me yeah with the you around you 
Yeah. There's no separation really. Yeah. yeah. And in the early days of public access, we were like trying to find our own format. Like let's avoid that format and see what the new version of the talk show format is. And then we had this episode that kind of like unintentionally was so bizarre. We did, we had this guy who was doing a bit where he was running for president and his whole platform was he's 35 years old and that's how old you have to be to be president. <laughs> and he was doing it for like, he did this bit for like two years where he'd come on. And he invited every presidential candidate in the last election to come debate him on public access. <laughs> and he's a maniac, so he really sent letters. Okay. And uh, we expected, we were like, and the bit will be, we'll set up chairs for everybody. It'll just be you sitting alone, frustrated. But do you know Jimmy McMillan, the rent is too damn high guy? Yeah. Yeah, he's like a local legend in New yeah, York. Yeah, he just yeah. runs for every office. He invited him thinking he would also say no. And Jimmy McMillan said yeah that's awesome he was like i'll come debate you and he came and it was really weird <laughs> and it was on halloween weekend i think it was actually it was four years ago now and uh we kind of were like oh shit now we have to do it now we actually have to stage a debate so we like left all these halloween decorations up and jimmy mcmillan to his credit we were like show's really weird do you want to know what we're planning he's like nope <laughs> let's just do it so we told him we accidentally double booked it with our halloween episode nice. and all the decorations were up and the debate was super weird but we just straight faced it and that one was this big event and it was like it wound up being really good and adrenaline charge and we pulled it off in a way we didn't think we could and at that point i was like let's not try to let's not have anything that even resembles a format right every week something different so now it's just kind of like every week we come up with like a theme or like an experiment we want to try and then that becomes kind of the lens that everything else like we filter every other aspect of it being a talk show through that so like in our first season on fusion like we did one episode where we stayed awake every single person in the cast was awake for 36 full hours before we started taping yeah wow and it was i was like crying and wrapped in a blanket by the end of it and uh we did another one where like you were you crying wrapped in a blanket on air on air with Shit. Seth Meyers because he is such a mentor of mine. So he did it too. He did the show, he, but he did the third. no. He didn't okay. stay awake. <laughs> okay. He taped his show and then came over from Rockefeller Center, like still wearing his suit, and walked wow. into this environment where we'd all been awake and we were in really rough shape, oh, like I bet. really bad shape, and uh, like did the show and it, I started telling him how like he really has looked out for me so much and I always felt like I kind of like let him down <laughs> and like started crying on the air, like oh. it's not good. Um, but I, I kind of I really like it because it's like I'm always just like, what can I do to subvert it? What can I do to like just undercut what it's supposed to be? I don't know where that comes from, but I've always had that Pump instinct rock. always <laughs> since I was a kid. Yeah, like it, it ties in like I've always just had that instinct of like, well, if it's supposed to be done this way, I want to do it another way. How would you describe the community that's around the show that is gravitated worldwide now. Well, that's like, that's been the most inspiring part. Like it's weird. Like, you know, it's like a lot of, I think it's a lot of, you know, first of all, it's comedy fans. I'd like to think, but I think that people were really active and the stereotype of the show is that it tends to be maybe like introverted kids, mm -hmm. shy kids, even like depressed kids. Um, which is like, I think a pretty good space to occupy. And I've definitely steered it in that direction because it comes from me and I grew <laughs> up being that type of guy. So that's the community, but they're really, they're small, but they're like really passionate and they make a lot of noise and it's cool. Like there were probably, I would say about half a dozen times during the public access room where I was like, I don't know why I'm doing this. We got to stop. Like, this is embarrassing. I'm like, this is actually humiliating and holding back my career. 
And then like something would happen with fans of the show. They'd email or I'd have an interaction in person or something. And I'd be like, oh, right. Right. That's why I do it. Because these kids are like these kids who are really like who seem to really need this thing are finding it. And then it makes me realize like, oh, if I get out of my own way and stop worrying about my own career, my own ego, like. I'm a part of something like I named this thing after myself thinking it was going to be a talk show. Right. It's become this other thing. And I have to remind myself that even though my name's on it, really, I'm just a part of it. I'm just like the figurehead of it. And, uh, sometimes people would reach out and let me know stuff that I'd be like, all right, that's awesome. That's and awesome. There's, um, quite a bit of people, if I'm not mistaken, who work for the show who like were started as just people like fans. Yeah. Yeah. In a big way. Like there's a guy, uh, named banana man on the show he used to just come dressed up as a banana and now he's one of the like top two producers on the show there's a guy named jersey dave who just showed up one day he was like i want to help out just like moving <laughs> wires and like carrying amps across the studio and then as we got to know him his job he was like he went to a college that didn't have a film school he went to Rutgers, where i went and uh after me though we didn't know each other there and he like decided halfway through he wanted to be a film guy, but like there was no film school available. So he just was like working weird production jobs and he fell into this life where his job was there's like these dance competitions all over the country <laughs> for little girls. Like these like pageant, like super weird, like stage moms, like and his job was to go videotape them. He'd go all over the country videotaping like young girl like younger than teenage like, girl dance competition like makeup and shit yeah probably. like super big hair makeup mom's yelling at them and stuff and he was it was like super weird life and then he said he would get like real depressed and it was like kind of in the world of tv production but he was like this is such a fucked up strange <laughs> world what am i doing and he would come home and he lived in manhattan and he started he like flipping through the channels found our show one day and he was like i want to be doing that right. like i just want to be making a tv show and he showed up and, and now he, again he's like one of the top two or three guys we have on the production side like it's his job so we have a, a bunch a whole bunch of people i would say most of the people working on the show at this point just like kind of showed up and we're watching it on tv and then we're like i just want to be a part of something can i hang out and we were like yeah man this That's is so awesome. this is the island of misfit toys <laughs> and you know when you're watching the show you'll hear people call in or see people skype in like literally from like all over the world yeah like what do you think is the most memorable time somebody ever like skyped in like the time you remember most um let's see the calls, I remember some, we, it was really phone calls for most of public access. The Skype, probably my favorite Skype was we did, one of the first times we ever messed with Skype. The first time we tried it, it just instantly created this audio feedback loop oh. and we found out about on the air and we were like, all right, enough <laughs> Skype. And then someone explained to us how to do it. And we had this kid who um, like Skyped in, he was, he was a Cornell student and he was in the library and he just Skyped in and he was just cool as shit. He was just like laid, a super laid back college kid. He was like kind of a heavy set, like dorky looking white dude. And he had on like a blazer. It's like real, <laughs> really like, but he was just super chill. And like he was, the crowd really started cheering for him. And then the next week I, I got, I emailed him. I found out his email address and I emailed him and I was like, what if we, I was like, I want to try a thing where like you're on Skype the whole episode, the whole hour, <laughs> and we just treat your Skype as if it's like 
you know, cut to camera two, cut to camera three, cut to camera, and camera five is your Skype. Like, what if we just think of this where the cameras aren't all in the studio, wow. you know? And he was like, yeah, I'm down to try it. So he went to the library and we put out word, like, if you're anywhere near Ithaca, you can go to the Cornell Library <laughs> and be on the Chris Gethard show. And we have a whole bunch of kids who watch at Binghamton, SUNY Binghamton. They all went up there. Whole bunch of stragglers from like people. Yeah. yeah, there's all these colleges up there and college we tend to click at colleges and all these kids just descended on the Cornell Library and it was just this guy, Mike, the next week he just like randomly Skyped in because he was bored. He wanted he didn't he was watching our show instead of studying at the library and then we did an episode and then we sent up these banana man and this character Vacation Jason, who are like two of the more <laughs> beloved characters in our show. And we sent them. We didn't tell any of them we were doing this, but you watch the episode and in the background, you just like see them walk by. So then there's people watching the show live who are tweeting. Like, I swear to God, I just saw Vacation <laughs> Jason in the Cornell library. And then the kids on the show are following the hashtag about the show while they're on the show. And they're like, wait, is Vacation Jason here? And I was like, that to me was just like, yeah, like why is this TV? Like why is late night? Like a white dude in a suit and tie telling jokes about politics that no that yeah, and talking to somebody in the Avengers movie or some shit. Yeah, like a pre-interview, like questions that a producer already asked him. I'm like, I don't get it. Like we live in a world where you can be doing so much other, not that I'm not saying my show is like God's gift to comedy. It was very often terrible, <laughs> but we always tried decent stuff, you know? Right. And then the calls, like I'll never forget like when we started, it was just people on Manhattan pranking us, just people okay. finding it on TV, tormenting us, <laughs> calling us up straight just up trolls. being like, why are you doing this? This sucks. And we were like, we know, we know, we'll find it. And then like the first time we got a call from Jersey, it was like, oh my God, what's going on? And then that started spreading. And then we got our first call from Canada and it was like, what? Then we were getting calls from Sweden and Brazil and all this stuff. And it was like, oh, people are finding this thing everywhere. And then when we, Comedy Central initially bought the, show as a pilot before fusion did and when we taped our pilot a girl that girl from brazil came to america to attend the pilot guys came from san francisco from honolulu canada like all over the place people just came and it was just like man this is rad but some of the calls i remember like probably one of my favorite ones was this guy calls we did an episode called genuine sadness which was really grim we like really committed to it we were like we only want sad calls wow nothing funny you you were opening yourself up to yeah. some shit but i also it was like born out of honesty because i was just like really in a bad place myself mm. for a stretch and i was like doing the show and the show wasn't good and i was talking to the writers and i was like the show's not good right now because like I can't do it. I can't show up on a Wednesday at 11 and all of a sudden just turn it on and pretend I haven't been miserable all day. Like I'm really dealing with some shit now. So let's just do an episode where we go. Let's lean into that and see what happens. And people gave us real calls. Like I figured our audience is 10 tends to be like high school, college mostly. Yeah. Um, and I figured it would be people calling, oh, this girl doesn't like me. I like this girl. I can't get the time of day. A dude called in and told us, that his brother had gone missing like a year ago and they found his brother's skull in a ditch the day before Holy where I'm just like on TV, like, shit. Oh my God. Like, Oh my God. And another guy called up that same episode and he goes, you know, like I've been married for like six or seven years and my wife is my best friend. Um, but she like pulled me aside a couple of weeks ago and said like, you know what we are as best friends. And I think we got married too young and like, I will be happier if we're not together and like, what am I going to do? Like, it's my best friend. I want her to be happy. I know she's right deep down. Like we could try to make it work, but it's not working now. And like, if my best friend is telling me she'll be happier without me, she's got to go. So 
all day today we like were packing the truck wow and um she left and i'm sitting in this apartment we lived in for years alone and i don't know what i'm gonna do and there's just this big pause and i'm like geez man i'm sorry and then he just goes yeah, so can I ask the human fish a question? And I was just like, oh, man. And that to me is like the ultimate moment of our show, I think, as I look back on it. Because it's just like we like tried this weird thing with sadness. The fans of the show, of course, went harder at it than we anticipated and made us step up. Which happened all the time. And then it's just like we went to someplace really real. But then also he, the human fish is maybe the dumbest character on the show. Maybe one of the dumbest things that's ever happened in comedy. I was over... Um I was over doing the Bennington show and I said, you know, Chris Stanley, the producer over there said hi. And I told him I was coming to talk to you. And he said, I said, I was going to interview. He said, yeah, ask him about the human fish. Yeah, man. <laughs> human fish is just my friend Dave without a shirt on wearing <laughs> goggles and being cryptic. And it's dumb, but I just loved it that a guy that sad could call our show and be like, let me get ask the human fish a question. Because to me, I'm like, isn't that kind of what comedy's for? Like you make people laugh and like the people who need to laugh most are probably the people having the shittiest day. So like we got that guy to call in and participate and laugh and get a laugh himself. Like that made me feel good. That's probably the call I'm most proud of looking back. I on. mean, especially cause you've struggled with depression. Oh yeah. yeah. And you like made that like a very public, yeah. Uh, a public thing that you've dealt with. Yeah. Which was like, you know, some of that is just because it's like, I'm not really a joke writer with my stand-up. I, I tell stories, and anytime I try to like lie or engineer it too much, it just doesn't work. Like mm -hmm. The only jokes I have that work are very honest. So it's just kind of like as I was moving through the material that was more comfortable to share, I'm burning it up. And then as I get more confidence on stage, I'm getting a little more comfortable being totally honest. And one of the honest things about my life is like sometimes, despite the fact that I've had a pretty easy life, like sometimes it'll be kind of a nightmare because my brain just fucking goes off the rails, you know? So that would show up in my work a little bit. And in the Gethard show, we'd joke about it and just became a thing that I think it was very odd to realize, like, it's still, it's still a thing that like people feel like they're not supposed to talk about right. publicly. And there's not many people talking about it. So the fact that I was meant that I think a lot of people who, especially young people, who maybe were dealing with that stuff, like um, I became a person who would talk to them about this stuff when not many people were willing to. So I don't know. It got tied into the comedy pretty organically, and then it became a thing that I was more and more known for. So I've really kind of, you know, was very hesitant at first because it was a little scary to just start hearing from all these people, but it was Absolutely. like, oh, man, they got no... Nobody else to talk to, so I wish I had somebody to talk to. I, I guess I, I should step up and be that guy. Have you ever been able to like kind of isolate what sets off your depressive episodes? Like, uh, yeah, I mean, like I've thought about it a lot. Some of it's just brain chemistry. Like, there's so many alcoholics in my family. I see. It's weird. Like when I first, because for years, like I grew up in North Jersey, and it's just like it's a place that puts like a real premium on toughness, you know, it's mm -hmm. like real, like, so put a facade on alpha, alpha male, everybody yeah. be tough, you know? And like, I did grow up in a town that was very, it was a very interesting place because, um, it's very, they always would say like first day of high school, they'd always say like, it's one of the most, this is one of the most diverse towns in the entire country, which is technically true, but it's not like everyone's amongst each other. Like, it's like, 
here's here's the neighborhood of these people right. here's the neighborhood of these people very segregated very segregated and like to the point where it was like up the hill and down the hill and up the hill was a jewish neighborhood and a protestant neighborhood and it was a little more well to do and then the further you got down the hill it was like halfway down the hill is the irish neighborhood where i lived and then the italian neighborhood so it goes from like Protestant and Jewish to Catholic. It's like an actual like <laughs> mid 1800s cartoon ladder. And then at the bottom of the hill, you got into like kind of like, you know, not to be totally insensitive, but you got to like a little bit of like a white trash stretch. Then it was the black neighborhood and then it was the Haitian neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And that was at the very bottom of the hill. And it was just like, oh, this is like insane. So it's a stratification like <laughs> big time and high school. Like it wasn't even high school. It was junior high school when it got really fucked up. Because it was like you go to your elementary school and everybody's from the very same pocket. So everybody's equal and everybody understands that. And kids, you know, kids just want to be kids. Kids don't understand. Then you get to junior high school. And I remember I went to the the tough one. And I still, I'll never forget. I had a kid who I went from kindergarten through college with. We went the whole time. We were like super, super tight. And then we lost touch. And a few years ago, we ran into each other. And he had gotten married. And I went and went out and met his wife. And as soon as we sat down, the first thing he says, he goes, man, Thomas Edison Middle School fucked my whole life up. And his wife was like, can you please tell him to stop complaining about middle school? And I was like, well, I'll, we can joke about it. But also just so you know, like he's not lying. Like he's not <laughs> lying. Like I remember once where he and his brother went to leave the school and there were just like, it was like these kids waiting just off school grounds. And it was like, oh, these kids have been jumping people. And like taking their shit, Walkmans. I mean, that's how old I am. I'm 35. So it was like, oh, and these are those kids. And it was like they, my friend and his brother turned back and went into the school. And they were like, these, the dudes who have been jumping people are right there. Please don't make us walk home. And they're like, well, they're off school grounds. Nothing we can do. And it was just like, okay, go fight your way home. But it was, it was this weird thing where like junior high, it started by high school. It's like, I remember high school, like you got like some kids who are driving brand new cars the day they get their license to school and then you got some kids who are paying for their lunch and food stamps and nobody addressing it and nobody everybody just trying to like not like everybody just you know just this fucked up thing where it's like oh like you look at like the graduating class and you look at like which kids are going to college and which kids aren't and it's all defined by like what color they are and what part of town they grew up in and it's just like oh this is fucked up and there was just a lot of anger so I think I was already probably prone with my family. Like when I first saw a doctor, sat down with my mom, and one of the things was the doctor was like, you got to find out if there's any history of this stuff in your family. And she was just like, you know, this aunt's an alcoholic, this aunt's an alcoholic, that uncle, uh, you know, he used to be an alcoholic, and now he's on these medications for depression, and this uncle's on depression. It was just everybody's like, she goes, she told me my, your grandfather was institutionalized because he used to have these like nervous breakdowns and stuff. And I was like, oh, so this is everywhere in my family. And on top of it, I grew up in this town where in the 80s and 90s, it was just like everybody was mad all the time, like mad and scared and just like, it was nuts, man. It was like a lot of, a lot of fighting. My brother, I, I like joke about, I'm doing this new hour about a lot of depression stuff, but I joke about this, but it's true. Like my brother once got bullied so bad that a kid broke his shoulder. He like broke his collarbone in a fight 
in the in you know in the schoolyard and the kid didn't get in any trouble wow. like nothing happened and my mom went down to the school and was like what is going on where my son can get beat up this bad and there's no consequences and they were like well that kid comes from a family uh like his dad's a real bad alcoholic and if we suspend him his dad's gonna beat him wow. like his dad's gonna beat him within an inch of his life and we know that so we're not gonna do anything it's just like i'm two and a half three years younger than my brother and i'm just like watching that and i'm like oh this is not fucking cool it's not safe it's not so i was fucking... like angry and scared and i used to fight a lot which is weird i tell people that and they don't really buy it but like because i'm such a nerdy dude but like I used to fight a lot because I was just kind of like, by the time I got to like sixth, seventh, eighth grade, it was just like, if somebody fucks with you, it's for real. So go like, don't wait to see how it turns out. You better fucking fight, you know? And it was just kind of this like weird, I don't know, just like weird neighborhood in New Jersey that was maybe a little tougher than it had to be. Hmm. And you combine that with like a family history of like real alcoholism and depression issues and I think I was kind of built to hit a wall and it was funny when I went to Rutgers that's when it happened which I as I've gotten older and like learned more about this stuff it seems like when people really break it tends to be when you're like late high school through college for some reason like if you're going to be schizophrenic that's when it reveals itself if you're going to be depressed that tends to be when it happens for a lot of people so I walked into that, but I'll never forget like getting to Rutgers, which is a state school, but it was weird for me. Cause a like state schools, I think sometimes have like, they're supposed to be like the blue collar. Right. And it was like the least blue collar environment I'd ever been in. And they're also supposed you know, college is supposed to be like diverse and it was the <laughs> least diverse place I'd ever been. So it was like immediately realizing like, Oh, my experience is different from people. And then I'll never forget, like I'd meet these kids and you know, like you're in dorms, you're like shooting the shit and everybody's getting to know each other. And I'd tell stories about where I grew up and I think they were really funny. And people would be looking at me like, what are you talking about? And it was the first time I got to college and I was like, oh, none of that shit needed to be like that. Huh. Like I didn't, I thought everybody, I thought everybody was dealing with stuff like this. Oh, most of these people <laughs> didn't have to deal with that. And I got really, really pissed off. I look back on it when I was like 19, 20, I was like so angry that it nobody stepped in you know Mm. what i mean like realizing like oh all those teachers all these adults just kind of letting this shit happen didn't need to happen even my parents although my parents were really like it's weird i had a conversation my mom actually last year like wrote me this letter when we sold the show and i have it it's really I don't think I've ever told anybody about this. I think my wife read it and that's it. But she wrote this show where she's like, I'm proud of you because you like really kept fighting Mm. for this thing. Like for years, you've been just like fighting. And there's times where I've been kind of like worried about you, wondering if you lost your mind, like doing this public (laughs) access show, but you fought for it. And then there was this line in it that broke my heart where she was like, a lot of times I think back to how you and your brother grew up. And I sometimes wonder like if I should have done more Mm. when I saw the things that were happening but if it means you you guys grew up into the people you are today, like you help a lot of people with your show and it's helped me feel less guilt about some of the stuff that happened back then. And I was like, this is trippy to read. Wow. This is like 
It's like she's kind of speaking on something that's kind of been unspoken throughout yeah, your entire life. Yeah, and it's like that weird thing too where you get to a point where like, I don't, for me it was only a few years ago, like when I was like 31, 32, all of a sudden it was like, oh, I'm, an, I'm a grown-up and my parents are talking to me like I'm a grown-up. Right, like they were just kids or yeah, or trying to figure shit out. Big like time. They didn't have it Big all time. together. Yeah, and it's like now they're talking to me like grown-ups talk to each other and they can finally admit like stuff was weird, you know? Stuff was weird. Like my mom was like, I should have pulled you guys from those schools and put you in like private school or Catholic schools or something. Right. But she was just like, you know, my mom's the best though. I'm not like mad at my mom, yeah. but she was also like, she was the daughter of like two Irish immigrants who came off the boat. For you to have dealt with this as long and as frequently as you have, you've also managed to stay very productive uh, in, in writing and performing and doing yeah. the show. Like, how have you found a way to deal with it and be and, and get up and go and work throughout these dark kind of times? I started coming up and doing comedy when I was 19. I was like really obsessed with it, really passionate about it. And I didn't see a shrink until I was 22. So I've been thinking about that a lot lately, how like comedy was the thing. You're working out your own issues with that. that. I was chasing and like, mm -hmm. especially doing improv then, you're playing characters. So I started to realize like, few things like first of all one of the beautiful things about comedy is like if you're funny doesn't matter how old you are doesn't matter what you look like if you're funny people other funny people respect it you know when it gets to the point where you're like hollywood's getting involved then it matters you know all that stuff starts to matter but like when you're first starting out it's like if you're funny end of story other funny people accept you i'd never had that and it was also like oh i can be a character I can do an improv show and pretend to be someone else and say some shit I need to say and the people in the audience have no idea that this is just me right. this angry because I'm pretending to be someone else. So for me, comedy was this thing that that was, that was the thing that got me through. So I always had that. There's definitely stretches where I'm like a little, um, you know, it's very hard to be productive or where I'll just wake up and it'll be like, oh, I'm at a deficit and I can feel it today because my head is, you know, doing what it does sometimes. But it's weird because, like, one of the things I'm really proud of is, like, for me, it's almost like having a cold at this point. It's like, you know, when you wake up and you're like, oh, my sinuses are fucked and I guess scratchy this, throat, whatever. And I, like, I would love to not go to work, but I got to go to work. Like, to me, it's depression has almost gotten to that point, which is a it's real victory. manageable, yeah. Yeah, where I'm like, okay, like, I know what this is. And my, I guess, like, my skin is thick enough now that I know I got to get up. And I, and I, I can see you, you pushing through and being creative through that. And I'm wondering, like, because not only... Are you, uh, like I said, you're writing and performing and doing the show. You're not only having to be the creative force behind the show, but you're having like managed people. Yeah. So how is it managing people when you're not feeling great? It's not the best. It's it's funny. I'll, it's funny you ask that. Like I, I remember once because public access. There were like four or five of us that organized. That we'd get together on Saturday, do the show Wednesday, and like email out to everybody else. Here's what we're doing. If you need to prepare anything, here's what it is. Blah blah blah. So it was pretty like laid back, but it was like five of us. And I'll never forget like when things, it was really 2012, things came back in a big way with the depression stuff. I like, I did Bonnaroo and I did, I've ha I hadn't done any, I haven't had any alcohol since 2002. I hadn't done any drugs since 2002. And all my friends wanted to do Molly. And I was like, I'll try Molly. I hear it's great. And I went nuts and it fucked my whole summer up. It wow. was bad. I went way too big with it. 
Oh, so you started doing it all the time at that point? Oh, okay. not all the time, but, but that weekend of Bonnaroo, I, I, see. I ate $300. I just kept buying and eating Molly, Shit. which is not even how Molly works, I later found out. <laughs> like, someone later explained to me that, like, it's releasing the dopamine in your brain, and once that's all gone... That's it? You don't even... So I was just eating chemicals after <laughs> oh, a certain God. point. I was just eating chemicals <laughs> to see what would happen, and that, like, that messed me up, and that whole summer was just bad. That was just bad, recovering from that. Everything in my life just changed. And that was a point where I remember like going to that crew of five people and I sat down with them at one point and I was just like, guys, I'm too depressed. I can't do it. You got to do all the work this week. Like wow. you have to do it. And I just owned it. And that it was cool because they stepped up and it became a thing where like there was a handful of people that if it was a Wednesday and I had to do the show and I knew I was in rough shape, there was a handful of people who I'd send a text and I'd just say, guys... I'm in really, really bad shape. I'm not going to be available before the show. I'm going to show up. Tell me what we're doing. Uh. I'll do it. You guys got to get my back on this. So for me, it's just, I've always, like, in everything creative and personal, I've just really learned, like, my option is just always double down on honesty. Mm. Just, like, don't hide anything. Because as soon as I start hiding stuff, that's when it gets really weird and dark. <laughs> you know, that's when it gets really weird and dark. Or like when I start putting pressure on myself, like nobody can know about this. I got to like power through, do it myself. Inevitably I fail and it, I feel humiliated. And so I've just learned like let people know what's going on. Be open, be honest. Don't try to hide anything because it never works anyway. And, and in, in a sense, I mean, it's funny because that kind of seems to inform your stand up and your show. Like yeah just leaning into whatever the like what's really yeah. going on i feel like there's no other option i've never found i wish i could like like i'm not a comedian who can like write jokes like i wish i was like i see guys who can like write one-liners or can like do like hit a you know hit a tag and then just like hit four punchlines falling off it i'm like i just don't i'm not good at that but what i can do is walk on stage in front of a whole bunch of strangers and be like so you know, I uh, I shit my pants on a subway platform six days ago. I'm not kidding. It was six days ago. And just, like, start there and see what happens. Yeah, I'm, I'm in. And I'm there's, going. like, an initial – generally, there's, like, an initial look on their faces where they're like, what the fuck is he – you shouldn't – and then hopefully I get them laughing and they're in on it. But to me, that's my option It's just be as honest as possible all the time. Does that honesty ever help lift you out of a darkness? It does. It does. Because it's like – it's weird. It's like, cause I knew, I knew something was up. I remember the summer between seventh and eighth grade, this friend of my brother's came over our house. Every, his, my brother's older than me. Everybody started getting their licenses so kids could just show up, you know? And this friend of my brother showed up and they were like in our backyard and I was back there too. And I was just like sitting in this chair, kind of looking at the ground. And my brother's friend came up to me and he was like, dude, like, whatever's going on, like, hang in there, man. Like, you're going you're gonna to be all right. And I'll never forget, like, realizing, like, oh, other people can, I'm fucked up to the point where other people can see it. Oh, <laughs> all right. And then I didn't, like I said, I think I was 22 before I went and saw Shrink. That's, like, a solid 10, 11 years <laughs> of just trying to not let anybody know about it. So um, that was, like, exponentially harder than when I got to the point where I started talking about it. Like I remember, you know, it would start with like when I first went on antidepressants, like, all right, I got to tell certain people in my life. Cause like 
they had bad side effects. So I had to like Let people tell know. my boss like, Hey, like, like I remember I was on this medication that would give what, me like, what job were you doing at the time? At the time I worked at a magazine okay. called weird New Jersey. Okay. It was like this, it was this, like these two guys made this magazine about haunted places in New Jersey and it blew <laughs> up and it was right. It was so fun. Cause like between punk rock and this magazine these guys made themselves. I was, when I was young, I was just around all these like DIY success stories, you That's know? Awesome. So that was like a good thing to see. But like my boss, like I used to have to go deliver magazines to bookstores and he'd be giving me directions and I'd just be like, wait, hold on, what? What? And he'd be like, wait, like what to which part? And I'd be like, I don't know what we're talking about because I was having these like crazy memory lapses from the medication. So I had to tell him like, hey, I'm taking antidepressants and it's fucking with my memory so sorry you're gonna have to help me through it and he'd be like all right you know and then like have to like dating girls have to tell them like you know i'm not you know like there were times where i'm like 23 24 and you're like hooking up with a girl and i'm like sorry it's not working i can't get it up right now because i'm on four different antidepressants because like nobody you know you don't it's not the stereotype of a 23 year old guy but like i'm like all right i'm gonna tell you ahead of time i take fucking four pills a day every morning and sometimes shit happens and are you just still like, taking a lot of pills now i am i went off I, I i took pills from 2002 to 2004 and then i had this like blowout with my doctor at the time and it was not cool and i stopped taking the pills because i didn't trust them and i you know i also had it in my head of like which i think a lot of people do of like man like it would be a victory to not be on this stuff anymore i think a lot of people think that way and I guess I get it, but the older I get, the more I'm like, just take your fucking medicine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, take your medicine. Like, like, no, there's nobody who's like, man, someday I'm going to get off this insulin. You know what I mean? Like, there's nobody who's like that. Like, I'll get to a point where I can generate my own fucking whatever. You know what I mean? Like, so I don't know. So right, I, no, I went nobody's, off them. Nobody's trying to uh, have victory over the asthma pump. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. Right, right. It's just like a thing you need. And then 2007, shit hit, hit the fan again really hard. And uh, I went back on them. And I just really realized then, like, oh, I'm going to be on antidepressants. I'm going to be on medications my whole life. Because even, like, you know, there's some, I travel so much for comedy that, like, there's days where it's like, oh, shit, I should have, like, gotten my refill before I left. And right. there's going to be two days at the end of this tour where I just don't take them. And on that third, fourth day, I'm, I can just feel like, oh, I'm totally manic. I'm totally fucking all over the map. It's just the thing I need. So I went back on them in 2007 and I've been on them ever since. And things have been a lot. 2007, was, that was really the point where it was just like, all right, the jig is up. I can't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to power through this. I'm not going to fight this off. That was when I really stopped hiding it and started talking about it a lot more on stage. Um, Cause it was just like, this is just a part of my life now. Um, yeah. So that's where you are with it. Yeah. And I'm like pretty, pretty i'm pretty proud like i it's become like a very unintended thing in my life that i talk about it so much but i'm like pretty proud that i've had a lot of people email me and tell them like I, i've had people tell me like i started seeing a shrink because you talked about it mm. it made me feel like it wasn't a thing to be ashamed of and i'm like that's awesome like i've gotten some heavy duty emails pretty much based off the public access show by and large where i've had people say like you know, like I was suicidal and then I watched your show and heard you talk about it and I tried the medications and they're working. So thanks. And I'm just like, that's nuts. Yeah. Like That's really crazy. You know, it does seem to be. And I, it's funny. 
I'm not always, I'm not ever, I don't think I've ever been consciously aware of this, but the stigmas around depression, the shame. Yeah. I haven't really thought about how negative that is. It's really hard. People have, you know, people go through all type of internal personal hell and just feel like they shouldn't talk about it. And it's weird. Like we, I mean, dealing with all this stuff, one of the things that's really made me aware of is that like, we really prioritize like toughness in this country. We really do. I think everywhere and North Jersey, I think buys into that hard. So it's just like, you know, I think it's kind of like this capitalism thing almost too, just because everybody kind of has to go to work and you got to live next to people and you got to just kind of be part of this functioning system where you don't really give most people you come in contact in a day whatever your real situation is because yeah. it's usually it's going to cause whatever thing you're doing not to function if that happens yeah it's really you know? it's really true and it's weird like there is like such uh, so many people who will say to me like oh yeah i used to take medication but i got off them i got off those and they say it with this sense of like pride mm-hmm. and i'm like well i don't get why are that where that's from and it's weird too like even some of the stuff like i just found out like i just got married a year ago and like, you know, like we're looking into like what our family's going to be. And it, there was a thought of like, it would be a nice thing to adopt. Maybe, maybe mm-hmm. that like, how does that work? And it's not anything we've made a decision on, but casually. And then I looked it up and it's like, oh, it's almost impossible to adopt if you've been on antidepressants. Like you have wow. to disclose that. And to me, it's like so backwards because it's like, so because I recognized that I had a problem in my and, life and got some help for yeah, it, yeah. Because I went and saw doctors, and because those doctors prescribed medicine that helps me, I'm not trusted with a kid. Whereas theoretically, if I never did any of that and remained this person who would sometimes flip out and stay awake for three days at a time and fucking lay on a couch crying for four days straight then it would be a lot easier for me to do certain things in life. You know what I mean? It's like weird. And there's like a handful of examples like that, that I find out about as I get older where I'm like, Oh, it's actually the system is built against you getting help. Like there are certain aspects of it where it's not cool. And then, you know, also all this other shit where it's like the NRA, that's their big play lately where it's like, it really drives me nuts because, like, you know, people will shoot up a school, like a fucking somebody will shoot up a school and their play now is like, well, it's not, guns it's that that person was mentally ill and it's like i didn't shoot up a fucking school right when god help like people you know if you notice this now anytime there's anytime some fucking asshole shoots up a movie theater you read the news and one of the very first things they research oh he was on these medications it's like the the fact that he was on those medications is not indicative of the fact that he later went on to shoot a school the fact that he was going to shoot up a school is probably why someone put him on those medications and it was a last-ditch effort that clearly didn't work. It really gets me mad, man. Because it does. It, it helps to create the stigma. Yeah, and it creates this dialogue that it's like, oh, like, like it's weird. It's like, yeah, okay, anybody who shoots up a school is crazy. Yeah, they're mentally ill, sure. But, like, there's a lot of people who are mentally ill who don't do that because they fucking commit to working really hard. <laughs> to making, And it's interesting. Like, I'm not saying I was ever there, but, like, I was a furious kid. I was a furious – like – this is fucked up. But like when I remember when Columbine happened, my brother and one of his best friends, when I ran into him, the next time I saw them, I was at college when it happened. And I remember bringing up to them at one point, like, I remember one time you came over our house and you two spent a whole day like laughing, making battle plans of like what you were going to like, 
they were, I remember, I never forget where they were going to take over in the nurse's office to get all the medical supplies and cause it had no windows and that was going to be like their base to like go get everybody they hated in school. And it was just like a fucking thing that teenagers did right. to fuck around. But like they made battle plans about how they were going to kill everybody. And it's like, I remember being like the angry young man who thought about shit like that, but you don't do it. And like, yeah, like those kids who do shit like that, they're crazy, but not not every you know there's a lot of people who grow out of that or who get help and, and just don't do it don't you know, do that right. shit. they don't follow through with, with it every, really gets me nuts it really gets me nuts man because it mean, only makes it harder you know what i mean like the, here's a, here's something fucked up this drove me crazy but i bit my lip and i was respectful but recently had a dinner with someone in the comedy industry and in the course of this conversation someone at the table who doesn't know you know, doesn't know my story, nor should they, but also doesn't know that I've spoken very publicly on this. This person at a dinner table, a friend of mine was saying that she had a lot of anxiety going on and she was thinking of uh, getting a prescription for Xanax or something. And this other person at the table was like, do not do that. You do comedy. You're a writer. Those pills are bad for comedy. They kill comedy. They kill your creativity. Don't do it. Like, if you take those things, you won't be funny anymore. Straight up saying this stuff. And wow. I was sitting there and I was like, oh, right. I've seen so many friends of mine in the comedy world who refuse to get fucking. I've, yeah, I've heard that said. Like, yeah. if I go on these pills, I'll lose my edge. I, I lose... won't be able to create anymore. Right. And it's like, I see a lot of, I've seen so many comedians over the years who like will say that. And then they're complete fucking alcoholics at a bar self-medicating every right. night. Because somehow that's better for comedy doesn't i don't buy it you know but i was really scared i I remember when i was a kid it's like three years into doing comedy at ucb and i was like i'm gonna go on these pills man i might not be funny anymore and i had to just kind of commit to the idea of like well if i'm not funny but i'm not suicidal like (laughs) decent trade (laughs) i think that's better i think that's better and then when i went on them i was actually really amazed because i actually was so much better I don't know if I was funny or less funny, but I was like so much more focused and organized and like not, my life wasn't complete chaos and everything helped. Like 2007 is when I went back on medications and you can almost look at my career. Not everything, everything I, that went into motion went into motion in 2007. It became more functional. Oh yeah. Imagine. Cause, yeah. and a big part of it was like, oh yeah, like I'm not. I'm not like doing two shows and then having such an adrenaline rush that I go into this manic phase where I stay up until six in the morning and then I sleep until three in the afternoon and then I wake up and I feel like a piece of shit because I slept that long and I don't write anything and then I have another show that night and the show gives me adrenaline that convinces me I actually worked today when I didn't. You know what I mean? And then like, how long after you got back on the meds did you create the show? The show, let's see. So I went on the meds in 2007. And uh, started with a shrink who I really liked in 2007. And she was like, you have to just like stop, stop doing anything. Like I had so much anxiety about my career. And she was like, just give yourself no other option. Like you've been doing this eight years now. Everybody says you're good. So like, why are you like doing like freelance magazine writing and copy editing gigs and like all this stuff you don't enjoy? Just like go act, go write. And if you can't do it, You'll fall on your face, but at least you'll know you went for it and you couldn't do it and you can move on. So that really got, that lit a fire under my ass in a big way and um, started doing tons of shows and started getting some 
like buzz just around New York, just like not even all in all, just in the alternative comedy world, people started to kind of hear about some of the shit I was doing. And a lot of it was kind of like weird event driven stuff. And the big one, I was telling all my stories and uh, all these kids started coming to every show I did, like this cult started forming and they, they were like, we want to see all the stories were from Jersey where I grew up and they were like, we want to see the places where they took place. So I rented a bus and we drove around New Jersey and I'd tell the stories in the places where they happened and that got a lot of press. What were these kids like? They were all, the initial wave of them, it was about a dozen NYU kids and I really think they built my whole career. Really two of them. This guy John, this girl Zoe, they like really, they would come see me in shows and at UCB ASCAT on Sunday nights mm -hmm. is the big show and there was a stretch of that show where it was like, the people in it, it would be like Horatio Sands, Seth Meyers, Jason Sudeikis, Amy Poehler, Rachel Dratch, Jack McBrayer, and Chris Gethard. That's the cast. Wow. So I was like the people's champion. You know <laughs> what I mean? And these kids, like I would tell stories in that show and I do try to keep up with these big dogs in that show and they really started rooting for me. And then they started wearing, they would come to ASCAT and they'd wear t-shirts that they made that would say like, let's get it started or like <laughs> get ready to rock or whatever. They started like drawing my face on t-shirts and the other performers were like, this is really weird. <laughs> and it felt like a bit and it kind of was, but then they also really did just like support me. And they were the ones that were like, there was these, that girl Zoe and that guy, John, they were like, rent a bus. We'll go around New Jersey. Like we'll tell everybody. And then it sold out. And then that was the start of the cult. It was like, I know all their names. It was wow. like less than a dozen kids who went to NYU. And then once that bus thing happened, I got this reputation for kind of doing these like weird one-off events. And then the artistic director at UCB, I sat down with him. I was like, I like, I like doing the show where I'm telling stories, but it's, I've been doing it so long. I'm bored. He was like, do you want to do anything else? And I was like, yeah, I want to do a talk show. And he was like, okay, like do a talk show. But here's the two things I'll ask. He's like, one, people pitch me fake talk shows all the time. And then it's just, they wear a suit and they tell monologue jokes and they interview somebody. He's like, there's enough of that. Don't do that. He's like, let it be where you do your weird shit, like all your bus stuff. And <laughs> I did another show where people were getting shot with a paintball gun if they weren't funny enough. He's like, all that stuff, do it there. And he was like, and just do me a favor, do yourself a favor. He's like, call it the Chris Gethard show. And I was like, I immediately was like, ah, I don't know about that. Right. Like that feels really arrogant. And he was like, well, just, he's like, you got to realize that like your name, people, people are hearing of you for the weird shit. And your name is starting to become like, like when people do weird high concept shows, people say like, oh, you're doing like a Gethard thing. Hmm. So it's, your name is becoming kind of an adjective for this certain type of comedy that you're leading the charge on. So if you, you should put your name on it. And it was, it was really the best advice anybody ever gave me for my career. Cause it was like in New York, if something kind of big and odd was happening, like my name was an adjective for that. Cause I was, I was at the heart of a lot of it. Well, thanks a lot, Chris. Dude, thank you for sure. Peace.